Uh, a few of our church family um, this last month managed to get down to the glorious island of Tasmania, my home state. And I was talking to uh, David and Saskia um, about, oh, David actually, um, over a coffee a, a week ago. And he was talking about how they managed to get up to possibly my favorite place in the world, uh, the Walls of Jerusalem National Park. Uh, if you haven't been there, it is stunning and worth a trip at least once in your life. Um, it's made all the better, I think, by simply having amazing names for the different parts of the, uh, of the National Park. You've got Solomon's Throne. Uh, you've got the Temple Mount. Uh, you've got Mount Jerusalem itself. Um, it's, for a Christian, pretty rich as you're kind of walking into this place with all these wonderful names. I never meant uh, forget when I made uh, the trek last about 15 years ago. Uh, from the car park, you, you hit this immediate incline. It just goes straight up, basically. And you're wearing these heavy packs, but you're super psyched. And so you, you kind of power up to the top, uh, which is a mistake because then there's this endless beautiful but endless alpine paddock that you kind of march along as you move towards uh, the, the mountain valley that marks the walls of Jerusalem themselves. Um, but then you get there eventually and then you climb up this pretty precarious incline, um, these loose rocks up to the top of Solomon's throne and you stand there at the top of 100 meter sheer drops and you just marvel at God's creation. Uh, you get to the top and you are exhausted and exhilarated that you've made the journey and you've arrived at the summit. Now, if I'd been a little bit more biblically literate back then, I might have realized that Psalm 122 would have been a very fitting psalm to open up and read at the top of Solomon's throne. These psalms, uh, Psalm 120 being part of them, is, as I said, a psalm of ascent. Uh, these were songs sung by pilgrims on their way up to one of the three major festivals in Jerusalem every year. Uh, last year, John helped us explore Psalm 121, which uh, sort of draws out these spiritual parallels to the journey itself as the pilgrims made their way across the multi-day trek. But if Psalm 121 is a song for the journey, a song for the climb, Psalm 122 is a song for the summit, a song for the arrival. It starts like this, verse 1. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. The pilgrim's journey is over. They have arrived. They are standing in the shadow of the mighty gates of the city. And the moment kindles rejoicing in their hearts, not just because the journey is at its end and not just because they're experiencing a sense of homecoming to their spiritual, cultural, political center, capital, but because they are experiencing the jubilation of drawing close to God. At the heart of Jerusalem, at the very highest place is the temple where God's presence especially dwells amidst his people. Now, it's hard for us, I think, to put ourselves in the shoes of these pilgrims because that kind of pilgrimage isn't really part of our normal experience. 
But previous generations of Christians actually tried to capture this, to capture this experience of coming to God. And they did it in their architecture. Uh, I don't know if you've been to St. Paul's Cathedral here in Melbourne or maybe to one of the many cathedrals in Europe. Uh, But these previous generations of Christians designed churches to try and get a sense of God as king, the one who dwells on high. And so they made churches that resemble palaces, naturally, carefully designed to cause the worshippers' hearts to be lifted to God, to respond to His majesty, His glory, His beauty. Something similar was going on in the design of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a city uh, who, which was itself a message, a message to those who arrived. And it's captured in the next few verses of the psalm, starting at verse 3. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Uh, not just a uh, discussion about the, uh, uh, the uh, architecture of the city. Um, it's meant to say this is a place of security, a place of safety from all enemies and all harm. It's built like a fortress with walls closely compacted together. And verse 4, this is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is a place of not just security, but community, where Israel comes together in this special moment to be united as one family. And verse 5, there stands the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. This is a place of justice where God's rule and reign and the righteousness, goodness and equity that flows from it is evident to all. So it's a place of security, a place of community and a place of justice. And of course, at the heart from the days of Solomon onwards was the temple, a place of worship before God's presence. The highest place of the city, a clear symbol that all their life and livelihood flows from their relationship with Yahweh, the God of their forefathers. So the song continues. It continues with a pledge of recommitment that these pilgrims would pray for the city, for its peace and security, and that they would act on its behalf. They would seek its prosperity. Now, what does this psalm have got to do with us? We're not pilgrims moving up to Jerusalem, and we're not Israelites. We're not uh, in a place where we are going up to worship in a temple. So what's it got to do with Christians? Well, Jesus actually talks about this precise issue, right? In John 4, you remember, he encounters this Samaritan woman. And one of her questions is literally around, well, where do we worship? Because the Samaritans, kind of the uh, cousins of the Israelites, uh, were worshipping on Mount Gerizim. And the Jewish people were saying, no, no, you've got to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus' reply was revolutionary, saying that a new era of worship was being inaugurated. In this new age, God's people would worship not in a specific place, but in spirit and truth. And since the Holy Spirit was coming to dwell in the hearts of people, true worship would be not a matter of a place, but a matter of the heart. That you could worship God truly and closely and intimately 
no matter where you were, no matter who you are. But at this point, um, a mistake could be made that's actually often made. And it could be said so that worship then is an individual matter. Because if we can worship anywhere, any place, then maybe it doesn't really matter where or when or how or who with. Maybe worship is just a private thing, part of a private religion where we do whatever suits us. But Jesus wasn't saying that. Worship can certainly be an individual act, and it should be. Our whole lives actually should be acts of worship. But certainly uh, can't just be an individual act. can't only be an individual act. As one writer puts it, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The normal environment for the worship of God to be played out in song and word and prayer and action is with others. In fact, the book of Hebrews picks up the theme of coming to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, in a spiritual sense. In chapter 12, verse 22, uh, the writer um, says, "But, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. He's saying that the city of Jerusalem was only ever a physical sign of a future spiritual reality. This city with its physical walls and stones and bricks was never meant to last. It's been replaced by something better. What? (laughs) Well, look around you. Seriously, look around you. (laughs) It's been replaced with this. The church. The church globally, yes, but also the church in its individual local expressions. A people, not a place, not bounded by geography, but united across the globe and across time and space by the Spirit of God. The the heavenly Jerusalem is the church as it is, an imperfect diamond, beautiful yet flawed, And also the church as God is making her to be, flawless and perfect. Like the vision in Revelation 21 of the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband, shining with the glory of God. But that being said, the description of Jerusalem in Psalm 122 still stands as a description of what the church should be, what the church should look like. It should be a place of security. A place where people are welcomed, loved, nurtured and cared for, protected. A community free from anxiety and fear. A place of ease, even in the struggles of life. And it should be a place of community, an expression of God's Family, a place where burdens and sorrows are shared, where good things are celebrated, where sacrificial love is the norm, where friendships run deep, a place where people of all types are drawn together in love across all sorts of economic and social and cultural and ethnic barriers. And it should be a place of justice where children, women, and men together sit under God's rule. 
trusting that his ways are the only ways of goodness and righteousness where the rich are humbled and the poor are lifted up. Sounds great, doesn't it? (laughs) Sounds like a community I want to be part of. But we know that the church globally, and even our church specifically, doesn't always live up to that description. Sometimes the church is is a place of anxiety, not security. A a place of isolation, not community. And a place of wrongdoing, not justice. I'm not saying that every church has serious issues. I'm certainly not saying that ours does. But it's true to to be said that no church is perfect. Every church is a work in progress. But reflecting this takes us back to the context of Psalm 122. It's written by David for the pilgrims and was certainly sung for the next many hundreds of years, still sung today in the context of that pilgrimage. So it was sung, this song, quite regardless of how well Jerusalem was going at the time. Whether it was in a time of flourishing like under David and Solomon or a time of horrendous, horrendous wrongdoing like under Manasseh. It went from the glory years to the dark times when the country was split in two and the Assyrians and the Babylonians were knocking at the door. When immorality, idol worship, injustice and cruelty reigned, when the city was attacked and besieged, when all hope seemed lost, even when the Spirit of God in Ezekiel left the temple. And yet whether the times were full of prosperity and promise or wickedness and evil, this song was sung by the pilgrims going up to that city. And so I think in the same way, whether the church is flourishing or failing, or even whether it's just kind of going okay, we are called to take up this song, this melody. Verses 6 and 9 tells us that as Christians, we have a special privilege. That privilege is to pray for the church and to seek its good. Pray for the church and seek its good. Look at that second half in verses 6 to 8. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. The word peace there is our old friend, Shalom, talked about a lot in this last year. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness. Emotional, spiritual, mental, economic wholeness. And the word security there is uh, related, but slightly different. Uh, It literally means a calm, undisturbed by social conflict within and dread of enemies without. It's the carefree security of a child knowing their parents are near and there are no enemies anywhere near. Free from anxiety, stress, or burden. Together, these words, peace and security, amount to great flourishing. <laughs> those are the things that the pilgrims prayed for Jerusalem and the things I think we ought to pray for the church and our church. What does it mean exactly? Well, the New Testament fills out what peace and security means in our context. 
An essential part of experiencing shalom peace in the church is in unity. And the Jewish festivals were times of unity as the 12 tribes came and gathered as one family. A moment of enjoying their their togetherness under God. Another Psalm of Ascent 133 says, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And then Paul in the New Testament echoes this sentiment when he urges Christians to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What is unity? Well, it's not some kind of weird groupthink or kind of cultish behavior or blind obedience to authority. It's not unity. It's putting aside differences of personality, preference, and position for the sake of loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbors. That's unity. It's unity in the gospel. Unity in what God has called us to be. Unity reflecting the God who made us. God who is one being and yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So that means that a church that is disunified fails to reflect the God they claim to worship. But a church that is unified around following Jesus on his mission is the act of worship in and of itself. Because it reflects the God that we worship. So we ought to pray for unity. Secondly, we ought to pray for security. <laughs> uh, this doesn't mean that we should all uh, get be praying for that each member would be getting ta- um, password managers and alarm systems or anything like that. Uh, it means true security. Security that comes from knowing that you are more loved and protected by God than you could ever realize. It's praying that we become a church that can cope with times of stress and change and distress, pushing back on anxiety and fear because we are grounded in the loving promises of God, knowing that all things work together for our good if we're called to love Him and according to His purposes. Fear destroys peace and it makes us unloving towards each other. But security brings peace because it makes us far less concerned about our own welfare and far more concerned about the welfare of others. So we should pray for unity, we should pray for security, and we should pray, finally, for maturity. It's kind of a word which captures, I think, in the New Testament that that shalom, that wholeness. It's a sense that we have grown up in Christ to become fully formed disciples, people whose spiritual roots run deep, people who take responsibility for their own spiritual health and the health of others and who are on guard against temptation and attack. It's true, maturity isn't mentioned in Psalm 122, but as I said, I think it can. it's the idea of that wholeness, of that flourishing. So something the New Testament picks up. So pray for unity, pray for security, and pray for maturity. And pray that so that when God answers those prayers, He will be praised as the one whose, prayer, whose power is clearly at work. That these things haven't come about just because of our own goodness and cleverness and competence, but because of God's innate grace towards us. We can pray this for the church globally. We can pray this 
for the church nationally. We can pray this for our church specifically. But in case we would be just praying and not anything else, the psalm goes one step further. Finally, in verse 9, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The psalmist says, pray, but don't just pray. Seek out the prosperity of the church. Seek. In other words, act for, work for, strive for. It means don't just pray for unity. Be a unifying person, a peacemaker. And don't just pray for security. Be a person who puts your roots down deep into God's sovereign power and trusts Him like the ground beneath your feet and encourages others to do the same. And don't just pray for maturity. Grow yourself up in the gospel and be part of growing us all up in the gospel. We should never pray a prayer if we are not willing for God to make us part of the answer. So pray for, with a willingness not just to ask, but also to obey. Seek the prosperity of the church. Two final things then. When and where. <laughs> Sorry, when and why. I should say. When and why. When shall we pray and work for the church's good? Well, obviously, anytime, as I said, we are people of the Holy Spirit. You can pray and you can worship anywhere, anytime, with anyone. But there is something special about when God's people meet together. And the New Testament doesn't ignore this. We don't have to make the trek to Jerusalem, no, but we do make the trek to Norwood Street in Flemington by walk or bike or car. <laughs> and we do make the trek to each other's houses as we gather as missional communities, as expressions of our family. So it would make sense to at least, at the very least, have this kind of attitude as we gather together, to go with these prayers in mind and heart. May we love like Jesus. May we be united in Jesus. May we be secure in Jesus. May we grow to be like Jesus. May we repent of the ways in which we have been more of a hindrance to these things than a help. As we go to gather, wouldn't it be great if this was the prayer of our hearts? We have time for prayer before every service at 3.30. Wouldn't it be great if more people came and took part in that and lifted up our prayers for these things to God? So that's the when. Um, but also important to ask why. Why would we do this? Well, the psalm actually gives us the motivation. The psalm says, For the sake of my family and friends. For when the church flourishes, we all flourish. We should do these things not actually or just for or primarily for our own sake so that we can have a great church experience, but for the sake of those who sit around us. But more than that, for the sake of the house of the Lord, in verse 9. Remembering that the church and every individual Christian is the dwelling place of the Spirit. So it's for God's sake, God himself, that we pray for good and seek the good of his church and that that in itself is an act of worship we do this in response to god's grace and perhaps by that self uh, by itself that is enough to fill us with love and new desire beginning of a new year 
Uh, and maybe it's enough to push back against any idea that this community is just a shopping center for religious goods or merely a social club or a religious checkbox or anything like that. But that this here is nothing less than the precious bride of Christ, God's hope in the world. But the scriptures actually give us even more reason. <laughs> It tells us we will only truly rejoice in God's church, we'll only pray for it and work for its good, flawed as it is, if we understand what it took for this psalm to be fulfilled, what it took for peace and security to come to Jerusalem. We know that Jesus made this pilgrimage many times in his life as a good Jew. But it is really, really significant. And on the last time he goes up, he did not go up singing and praising, even though very likely this psalm was being sung around him. The Gospels tell us that he went up weeping because he saw the city that he loved in its darkest hour. Luke 19, he says, If you, Jerusalem, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. <laughs> Jesus mourned because he knew that what it was going to take, what it was going to cost for Jerusalem to experience peace and security. And he mourned because he knew that these people didn't know what it was, that they'd missed it, that they missed the Messiah, these pilgrims that they were walking alongside. And they, he mourned because he knew that there was these people who would call for his death. Jesus went up to God's house to die. And he died to forgive our sins so that we could become a fitting place for God to bring his peace, to give us the Holy Spirit and to unite together and give us security. And so our prayers are powerless and deficient and our, our works, our seeking for the good, are powerless and deficient unless we recognize what God has done to bring peace and for that to guide our prayers and motivate our deeds. For us to recognize that Jesus came up mourning so that we might come up rejoicing. So when we pray for the church, we pray in the name of Jesus. When we work for the church, we work in the power of Jesus. And when we overcome our disappointment for our failings and for our, us personally, also those that we see around us, we do so because we know that God has overlooked his people's failings through the sacrifice that Jesus made through his great grace. Our friends, I'm praising God for our church today. Because God has chosen to dwell amongst us and make us his work in progress. And so I rejoice and I hope you rejoice with me in God's grace that for his own sake and also for our good, God is making us into a beautiful, shining, glorious city. May that be our prayer this year and every other year. Uh, in a second, I'm, I'm going to pray really sh quickly. And I thought, what a great day to be outside and, and pray together. So I wondered if you might turn to the person next to you or in threes. Uh, and really briefly, maybe just pick one of those three things. Security, maturity. Oh, no, I've forgotten the third one. Help me out. Security, 
Unity, thank you, Kat, and maturity. You just pick one of those three to pray with um, the person sitting next to you just for a few minutes, and then we're going to sing. Let me pray. God, because of your gracious gift of the Lord Jesus, we are here today, bound together in your love, reflecting the unity that is at the essence of who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit. May that be reflected in us today. Lord, bring us peace and bring us security. And not only us here at Inner West Church, but across the world as we come ever closer to that day when you make us perfected and, and Jesus returns and sets up his final rule and his final reign over his church and over this world forever and ever. Amen. We're going to take a few moments to pray with each other.